Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning, Marjorie. Hey, Claire. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Good. It's March. Can you believe it? Marching on into March. (laughs) I love this month. My disdain for February is only matched by my love of March. I don't I, I don't know whether it's Persian New Year or Stanza or it finally sort of, I know it's going to snow again, I know, but that kind of hope really feels, I can feel it in the air. It feels real to me. Do you love it as much as I do? Do you know what? I don't mind February because we get a week's holiday for half term and it's a nice short month. But March, I think, sometimes brings false promise, you know? You think the beast from the east was March and various other, like, really you know you just get that little hint the snowdrops are out you might have even seen a crocus the daffodils are poking through and then the wind and the snow and the rain returns so i think i'm more an april fan than march march i'm a bit distrustful for although i did it is our wedding anniversary in march so i obviously did choose that month to get married (laughs) and i think probably having grown up with a history of new year being the spring equinox and the start of the year i probably somewhere in my genes have built this sort of in built sense of this is the time to re-emerge, the time to go out. Really feels like it belongs in this month, which is perfect in my mind for our theme for the month, which is the wild. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. I like this one. And we've got a story called Roots from Sarah Whiteside. And then we're going to be sharing Jane Clark's great poem, Camping at Berna. Shall we get started on it? Yeah, why don't you start? Okay, this story by Sarah Whiteside is called Roots. That's how it is at times, the need to get away, to be alone. Esme feels it come across her like weather, a flurry of heat and activity, a squall of bad temper. Adam knows her well enough by now to see it coming. Go then, he says, go. And so she does. In the small car park at the bottom of the hill, she swings the rucksack on her back, bracing against its weight. She locks the car door, glances at the screen of her phone, and switches it off. There's no reception on the hill anyway, no chance to check in, even if she wanted. Going out of the car park, she catches eyes with the dog walker heading in. The usual voiceover plays in her head, the one saying, Last seen leaving Carlops around 5pm. It drones on in that way it has appeared to be heading towards the reservoir, not been seen since, family increasingly worried. All you can do is ignore it. She crosses the road and takes the path upwards between fields of sheep. She regrets the thin-soled trainers. Her softened feet feel the point of each sharp stone. Eyes on the path, she sees the last pale light disappearing above the hills, wisps of late summer cloud. Already, in the distance, a dark patch of trees is visible on the hill's flank, her wild place, where she plans to spend the night. She keeps her thoughts raised high, fills her mind with light, bleaching out the dirty washing, the jobs on her list that remain unticked, and Max's hot breath on her cheek as he hugged her at the door how he wouldn't let go. In the end, Adam had come and peeled him off her. Say bye-bye to mummy, he said. 
The sight of them still waving in her mind almost turns her back, but she goes on. She's had enough of the domestic, the daily rounds of meals and chores. She's wanting something deeper, something more. Should we stop there? Yeah, I can definitely recognize that feeling and sensation of just the daily grind of of it and then the guilt at feeling that you want away from it all. Yeah. And that feeling of not being able to let go of the things that are circling in your mind. Oh, I forgot to tell. Oh, that thing needed to be done and I didn't remind so-and-so. It's a parent's checklist, I think. But so often mothers carry the mental load of those sorts of things. So even as she's carrying things on her rucksack, she's carrying this mental load of jobs that needed to be done, things that needed to be done. And yet it's not clear to me from this little bit that we've read, she is carrying the mental load because Adam has told her to go. You know, she's got a kind of freedom to go, or at least a partner who recognizes it in her. I don't know what you think. Do we know enough about him to make a judgment yet? No, but I do like that line, Adam knows her well enough by now to see it coming. When we're talking about the it being that description of our need to get away, the squall of bad temper. I recognize that in myself, you know. It's funny how as mothers we're hard on ourselves, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it doesn't change. You know, you think, oh, well, when, they, when they're a bit older, when they can sit up, when they're sleeping through the night, when they can walk and, you know, go out in the garden and entertain themselves for a bit, or when they start school, that great myth of all the time you think you're going to have when your children start school, you know, or when they're teenagers. And it doesn't, it just, it, it changes, doesn't it? That mental load and that sense of what you have to do and what you're needed for. I was going to ask about this bit where she has the voiceover playing in her head. The one saying last scene leaving Carlops. I mean, that to me sounds a bit like, you know, a news report for a missing person. And, and what I'm thinking or what I was wondering is, is she worried that something's going to happen to her to cause her to go missing? Or is she like the mum in the Sharon Olds poem where she steps off the bus with her child in her arms while it's still moving, but then, you know, for the rest of her life has to keep an eye on herself so she doesn't step off the bus with the child in her arms? You know, is, is she worried that she might just be tempted? to head towards the reservoir? Yeah, well, when I read it, and and until I read it just now, when I first read it, I thought it was her being worried that something would happen to her from external forces. So, you know, when I grew up um, in DC for those years, we were very near the Sea and Oak Canal, which is a beautiful, beautiful beauty spot between the Potomac River and the hills and a huge canal that ran for, I don't know, 100 miles or something along along those banks. And so it was a perfect place to go running or, you know, dipping in the water, lots of things. But it was also a really dangerous place for women. And so anytime I found myself alone in the woods or in Rock Creek Park, all the sorts of places that we went as young women, I would hear this similar voiceover. I would try and make sure someone saw me leaving or entering the car park so that people knew someone would be able to say where I was. So this is a voiceover that I feel really familiar with. And then when I was reading it just now, out loud, I suddenly thought, is she a danger to herself? You know, where is the danger? Is it external or internal? And I'm not sure. You know, it. I guess we don't know enough about her to know whether the squall of bad temper is short-lived or whether it's something that she's been living with or is a, is a symptom of something deeper and bigger, which is true for so many people that we know and love, isn't it? I feel it's very deliberate by Sarah Whiteside just leaving those two options floating there for us to think about. Yeah, and then what follows is this beautiful description of feeling the sharp points through stone through her trainers, which for me is a 
fabulous metaphor for, you know, suddenly she's got this pad of the wild and the outdoors and the jaggy bits of her real life are still sticking to her. You know, it's not thick enough. She's still feeling what she's trying to get away from. And yet she's trying to keep her eyes up, filling her mind with light and things that are bright. And so what follows is for me a description of trying to put some distance between her and the hard or difficult things. And I'm not sure that's parenting still. I'm not sure that's the mundanity of the cycles of washing, but it could be. And sometimes I wonder if that frustration you might feel as a caring parent might also just be that symptom of something bigger that so many of us don't address. And I can see it, that metaphor that she's talking about expanding beyond the sort of parent idea, which is she's obviously sketching out in the story. But, you know, if you're a carer for an elderly parent or if you have a job where you're carrying the responsibility of what feels like the salaries of all the people within the firm or within the team, you know, that same just load and just wanting to get away from it. I think, it, you know, it reaches much, much further than the sort of parameter she's drawn in the story. But I also recognise from a pure physical perspective having the wrong shoes on <laughs> to, to go and do various things in my life you know climbing up hills in sand shoes and going on on long walks and really inappropriate flip-floppy type shoes <laughs> and those things so I really enjoyed the way she sort of hooked me in by something I recognize and then as you say broadened it out to make you think oh is this really just a metaphor for the things that she wants to talk about or wants us to think about. I know it made me laugh because I um, have one pair of trainers that is for hill running and one pair of trainers that's just for road running. And the hill running shoes by design are thinner on the bottom and have much bigger grip. But the bigger grip means that you can actually feel what's underfoot a lot better, weirdly, probably so that you can decide how to balance your feet and how not to slip. So going out running, I often find that my feet hurt more when I wear the hill running shoes, but I'm safer than the really lovely big paddy ones that are made for concrete, which, you know, really my feet don't hurt in. But I'm always at a danger of slipping. So it made me laugh that she's gone for the thinner ones, which again feels like, you know, there's some danger, there's some risk there. So she's gone for the thin sole trainers that allow her to grip better in some way or hold on to this world. But that's me absolutely projecting my own shoe wear choices onto her. And then I loved that she comes straight from that back to the idea of the child on her cheek and how he won't let go and the guilt involved in pulling away from a child who needs you, even if it's just a hand them to another parent who loves them equally and is equally able to take care of them. That idea that we somehow feel that hours later, the guilt involved, and that somehow impinges on our ability to be present in the place that we've chosen to be. It's almost a waste, you know, thinking I've done all that to get here and I'm still thinking about this child's breath on my cheek. But how can we not? You know, how can we not? Shall we read on? Yeah. Shall I read the next section? Yeah. Everybody knows you have to ask permission from the trees before entering a wood. All the old stories say that. In our hurry, Esme forgets. Perhaps that's why the biting midges come. They follow her about like thoughts nipping at her neck and wrists each time she stops. She has to put the tent up bit by bit. Between each clip and peg she runs. Once it's done, she eats her dinner that way too, darting up and down the clearing between mouthfuls. I'm not enjoying this at all, she says aloud. To herself, perhaps, or to the trees. Above her head, the leaves rustle and confer. 
She hears them whisper in a language she's forgotten, their voices just audible above the constant running of the stream. She has heard enough fairy tales to know that when a girl goes into a forest looking for something, what she gets is rarely the thing she wants. That if you're very lucky, you sometimes get a better thing. The midges are a trial, perhaps some test she has to pass. She tries to see them that way. When she's finished eating, she sits inside the darkened tent, waiting for them to go. Max will be in bed by now. She won't get any messages here, but she digs the phone out anyway and turns it on, holds the cold blue screen aloft. She thinks to him. His eyes flutter closed, then open, then closed. That nightly miracle of crossing into sleep, hard to believe in from here. She closes her own eyes. His arms are thrown wide in a gesture of trust, of vulnerability. She sees that. She should be there. It's too late now. It's getting dark. She unzips the door of the tent and sticks her head out. The midges have gone. On the far bank, a deer grazes in the day's last light under cover of the trees, for all the world like something from a myth. Esme has come here looking for a different story, but it's hopeless. You can't travel with your anxious mind, with your own two eyes, and expect to find anything but yourself. The deer looks up, and seeing Esme as the predator she is, takes flight. It leaps off through the foliage. A moment later it appears, still leaping along the brow of the hill. Then it's gone. Esme doesn't sleep a lot that night. The ground is hard. Her hips hurt. She turns from side to side, trying to get comfortable, to trick her mind into ease. Above her somewhere, a buzzard hunts. Its cry echoes in her waking and her dreams, audible through the stream's burble and plash, through the whisper of leaves. By the early hours, she's no longer sure if what she hears is the bird itself or the screech of a thought if that constant murmur is water running over stones or her own blood rushing in her ears. It's as if she's made of sound. Beneath her, trees reach out and twine their roots like fingers, passing messages of sap and remembered light. She wanted to be alone, but she's not alone. Life surrounds her, goes all through her. Everyone she's ever known is knotted in her heart. Adam and Max, the old woman who lives upstairs, the man in the corner shop who always smiles but never looks her in the eye, the awkward exchange every time she goes in for a pint of milk, the great tangled confusion of the human world. She can't leave it behind, however hard she tries. In the morning, she makes a cup of coffee on the stove she brought. The midges haven't yet returned. The sun is coming up. She washes out her cup in the stream and packs up her belongings, then turns towards home. Definitely didn't end the way I thought it was going to end. 
How did you think it was going to end? I guess now with years of perspective, I always think those days of a break that you're given gave you what you needed. But reading this story, I'm not sure she's gotten what she needed. I'm not sure she's had the distance or the sort of zen or the freedom or the back to herself that she'd wanted. There's a part of me that feels like she really is ready to go home. She's up before dawn. Yeah, but I think she's had, if not an epiphany, an an understanding. There feels like a bit more contentment in her, in that sort of acceptance of the intertwining of everyone and the fact that maybe it's just not possible to completely leave all that behind and maybe it's enough just to put a bit of distance there for a while. And I guess it's the perspective thing, right? So she can see her own life more clearly when she's away from it. And I think maybe part of the problem of being a carer for a child is that you don't ever get away from it. That kind of dailiness of it, the sort of immediate, not just dailiness, the hourly, every minute, every second, especially of a very young child. It's really smothering, I think, for someone who who needed just the odd few moments to themselves. You don't even get to go to the Louvre by yourself for a few years. So I can see needing it, but, and maybe maybe this time away has allowed her to reflect on it in a different way, like just kind of turn it as if it's a glass in her hand and see it in a different way. I'm not sure because she says, I'm not enjoying this at all. And yet she stays. I think it would have been hard for her to leave, though. I'm not sure she stays because she necessarily decides to stay or because she stays because she doesn't feel she has an option not to because she says it's very dark. Yeah. And there is something spooky, I think, about being in the trees when you're camping. You know, you think it's a good idea in daylight and then suddenly your whole soundscape changes, you know, when it's dark or almost dark as it often is in the woods at night, you know, every sound is super magnified and you're never sure what it is. And you can hear the kind of cracking branches, which will be some animal out there. But because you can't see it, we're defenseless in a way that we're not used to being defenseless, I think. So maybe that's the part she's not enjoying, the kind of inability to control or the inability to even identify what's around her. I I really like the way that Sarah has woven myths and stories and folklore through this and references to, you know, you have to ask the trees and you have to, you know, the girl that goes into the forest doesn't to look for something doesn't always find what she's looking for. And but I think that does something to sort of heighten a bit of suspense and create a bit of tension that when she does come to the description of the soundscape and you know, as you've just said, the visual has gone, your mind starts to think, you know, is there a bogeyman in the trees? And I think that's kind of planted by the sort of the references to the myths and the folklore. and the, That the trees almost become their own beings, right? So, I mean, I know they are their own beings, but they almost become anthropomorphized. You know, the idea that you need to ask permission of these beings to come into the woods. So then it's possible at night that they're speaking to each other or that they've taken on a life that we as humans don't see or recognize. So you're right, we're set up for that. And then she's in the dark. And so we think, what's next? And what's interesting to me is that, and also something I recognize, but probably something I hadn't thought about before, is as a, as a form of comfort, she goes back to her child going to sleep. You know, she's trying to reach out to her own child, who she's not able to reach by her own design. And yet when she wants comfort, what she recognizes or thinks about is her child falling asleep. So it's turned for me on its head, you know, that idea that they might need to reach her, but in fact, it's her that reaches them in order to kind of calm her rushing heart, which is a beautiful thing, I think. And still the guilt comes through. She should be there. You know, she's in this moment, she's unable to leave. She's worried a little bit about what's going on around her, outside of her tent, this whispering, the voices. 
there's still room in that sort of worldscape for her to feel guilt as she should be there, which I feel gutted by and yet recognize. You know, there's layering. It's not as easy as just saying she's scared or she's been given permission or the trees might be talking, but also on top of that, there's somewhere she's feeling guilty. And then the deer comes. I was disappointed that the deer sees her as a predator. I don't know about you. I, I just thought that, that paragraph and the paragraph that follows, just the description, the writing about nature and about animals, just thought was beautiful. If you've seen a deer in that sort of setting, they do startle so easily. I guess I'm not surprised that she saw as a predator, but well, maybe I'm surprised that she acknowledges herself as one. I think what I wanted to find was that the deer didn't startle. Because often, if you're not moving and a deer comes on you or comes upon you, it won't startle because it sees you as part of what's there. It's you moving that startles them and them recognizing you as a predator. But I think as much as anything, that's her seeing herself as part of the outside world and not part of this setting. It goes beautifully with the line that you can't travel with your anxious mind and expect to find anything but yourself. She wants to take herself off and be one with nature you know, actually she feels guilt and she pictures her children. Something about that paragraph recognizes her lack of place in this setting or her outsiderness in this setting. And then I was thinking that that line about you can't travel with your anxious mind and expect to find anything but yourself on some deeper level is true wherever we go, even into literature, even into poetry. Often what we're looking for and what we're finding, I think, and I don't think this is too big a thing to say, is ourselves. You know, we're finding a different version. We're seeing ourselves anew or in a different way. So here she recognizes herself as a predator. Or even just seeing something we recognize of ourselves, something that we can relate to or, or connect with. When I read that bit about the anxious mind, I connected the deer startling with, you know, my immediate thought was, oh, she must have been downwind. The deer must have smelt her anxiety. Because the times that I've ever, going back to my student days of having a, a summer job in the Cairngorms, the times that I did ever get to observe deer in any way at all was when I was standing with the wind in the right direction and they couldn't smell me, you know. And so my my, my mind went back to thinking, oh, she must have been, they must have smelt her anxiety. I love that that section of the story and then the the following section of the whispering of the leaves and the streams and not being able to distinguish whether the sound you're hearing is in your own ears or outside that tells me something about the state she's in I think because as someone who reg regularly hears my own heart in my ears I can't imagine not being able to distinguish it between a stream outside I love camping still at this age I think partly for that kind of brown noise, as it were, your brain can't keep up with it. And so in some ways, because the stream is sound is shifting so much, your brain can't figure out what it is. And somehow it dulls a sense of anxiety or a sense of sleeplessness. But she can't figure out whether it's her own blood in her ears, which tells me something about the state she's in, I think. Yeah, but also makes me think, you know, she might be a mom with all these chores and then the boredom of her young children. At least there is some spark of imagination or thought or almost a place she can go. If, if she can't distinguish those sounds, her mind and her imagination must be really active for her. Exactly. Well, and then when she describes the people around her, you realize she does have an internal life. She recognizes or that the man at the shop smiles but doesn't look at her. So she does have, she does engage with the world around her. She's paying attention. And there's something nice about her realizing that that, that whole world is connected and even to the place where she's sitting and continuing without her in it, which I think 
says a lot. It's almost like a little death. You know, when people experience grief or a death, often the response has been, I can't believe the world continues, even though this huge thing has happened. And the way she describes the life happening around her, even though she's sitting in the world, feels a bit like that in a way. Like she realizes the world is continuing, even though something about her has stopped. And then morning comes and she makes a cup of coffee and washes her cup and and turns towards home. It feels like, as you said earlier, even though it's only been a short time and there's been bits about it she hasn't enjoyed, it feels like she's ready to go home. There's not a sense of, oh, that's over now, I have to go back to it. No, and I think something about camping gives you 24 hours of experience, even though you've been asleep for part of it. So she'll have had more than just a day out or whatever. I love that the story ends on home because, you know, you could have been fooled into thinking that when she's marching off into the reservoir, that she's sort of returning to a a home of sorts for her, a place that feels like home. And I know we've talked on this podcast about how often the woods feel like that for me. And yet for her, very clearly home is the place she's heading back to. And that feels like a progression in some way from the beginning of the story, when she was just desperate to get away and go to this place that would maybe feel familiar, but obviously didn't. So much to talk about in that story. We'd love to hear what you all think about it too, and whether you think she's afraid and whether you think she's engaging with the trees. So do get in touch and let us know. Shall we read Jane's poem? Yes. Camping at Barna by Jane Clark, and it comes from her collection, When the Tree Falls. Camping at Barna. Fifty odd miles from home in a wind-blown Atlantic field, she has us connecting poles guiding them into flaps, hoops and eyelets, hammering pegs, tightening guy ropes. The ground sheet rips, the milk turns sour, someone drops the eggs, and more often than not we wake to the puck, puck, puck of raindrops. She spreads wet towels on brambles, keeps an eye on the tides, and watches us run barefoot down the by-road to the strand. Nothing rocks her belief. A week at the edge of the ocean will set her children free. So this mother has taken her children. Perhaps against their wishes almost, or with some protest. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But it makes me laugh because I'm thinking, you know, this can't have been very much fun for her mother, the mother, right? I love camping, but I, I have been known to take my children out and set them up, set up a tent, and then take it down at the end of the day and go home because I can't deal with the misery or the complaining about a night's sleep. And actually, all we want to do is have the fun of putting the tent up and having somewhere to sit. Did you go camping with your parents? We didn't overnight camp, as it were, but we did spend a lot of time in the sort of glens around Angus. We'd quite often pile in the into the car with the barbecue and, and head up Glen Clover, Glen Esk or Glen Isla for the day. And, you know, not particularly weather dependent activity. I remember being very worried at probably about age eight that my legs were blue after after I'd been in the river pottering around and jumping in pools and coming out and having to strip off completely and be rubbed down quite rough towels and into woolly jumpers and fleecy leggings and things and flasks of hot chocolate, but not much 
much sleeping over outside in tents. Yeah, my parents did take us every once in a while and we went a few times with godparents as well. And But I went a lot with the brownies or the Girl Scouts. And I loved that idea. And I still love that idea of the kind of sufficiency of whatever you've got with you, that it would just have to make do with whatever you've got. I do. I love that idea that like even when you go on a journey, you'll just have to make do with whatever's in your suitcase. There's something freeing about it, I think. You know, it does sound like it, there is an affection there, even though there's soured milk and dropping the eggs and things. There's something, she's writing about it, right? It doesn't, it's not a misery poem in it by any stretch of the imagination. It feels like something there she looks back on, uh, admiration at the very least, if not some joy. Yeah, it feels like she she looks back and at the time perhaps wondering what the heck are we doing here, this is rubbish. But she can look back as an adult and see the sort of value and the reason and, and, and why her mother had done it, the gift the mother wanted to give. Yeah, and the energy it would have taken, right? Like she has us doing this and this and this and having to take wet, you know, it's not the kids taking the wet towels and putting them on brambles, it's the mother. So she's still being a mother out in the wilderness. She's still taking care. And this is a version of taking care, which I think is a really um, onerous one and a beautiful one somehow. It's almost like a an honoring poem. I recognize the effort that it took to do this extra thing out in the wilderness. And, you know, nothing would shake the belief that it was it was for the good, you know, because it, it wasn't easy. It's a bit like making children do chores. It's a pain in the neck. It's easier to do it yourself, but it's for the good, we think, those of us who haven't given up yet. Or, or the, the times that you did baking with your children. Oh. You, you end up with a, maybe half a dozen misshapen scones with the majority of the dough trampled into the kitchen floor and flour over everyone and everything. And you're thinking, this would have taken me 15 minutes to do myself. It has taken me 45 minutes to do with the children and it will now take me an hour and a half to clear up. But as you say for the good. <laughs> yeah, and I think if you know Jane's poetry, and assuming this is her mother, her work is so much about the natural world and the outside and the beauty of the very simple outdoor natural thing that we see or the garden or the woods or the river. And so I want to believe that this poem is a kind of acknowledgement of not just her mother's hard work, but perhaps where that love comes from, that affinity with comfort or care in the natural world comes from, which is the idea that they were forced <laughs> to go and spend a week in this outside place and become familiar with it. So it doesn't feel so other in some way. And then look, you know, what Jane's done is make a life of observing those places, which I think is very moving. So it's almost a Genesis poem in some ways for me, if you read the rest of the collection um, or her new one about where that love might have come from, where that observation or that detail might have come from. I have to say my parents took us to cabins mostly, which we were grateful for a bed at the end of the night, but still just with screens, no windows. So, you know, we were outside, but kind of dry and in a bed. So somewhere in the middle, I suppose the UK doesn't have the same camping cabins, but I would go for those if I could. Was that an early version of glamping? <laughs> yeah. Slightly in more. cabins rather than ground sheet. Yeah. And possibly slightly nicer than Bothy's in the sense that you you would hire it and pay for it and you knew what you were getting, which was not very much at times, but it was yours. And you weren't going to have to get there first and make sure you got a place to sleep. And sometimes you could bring your own linens and so you would get a bed. Even so, you know, my memories are of 
finding wild mint and making sassafras tea and all those things that children love doing. And I never would have done that if they hadn't taken me into these places. And I'm sure looking back, they, they would probably have preferred to be sitting in the comforts of their own house, making their cups of tea and not having to endure sassafras tea from their youngest. But my mum used to always read out the little cross stitch that hung at our door on our way back in, which still hangs at her door, which says... To know how sweet your home can be, just go away but keep the key. There you, there are. you go. <laughs> it's a motto for camping for all of you listening. <laughs> oh, so thank you so much to Sarah and to Jane for letting us have their story and poem to podcast today. I think that's just about all from us. We look forward to being in New Year's again very soon. Thanks. Thanks.